Hello, uh, I'm Nilvikar Singh. I'm a professor of economics at University of California, Santa Cruz, and a member of the editorial board of uh, Ideas for India. This is the uh, 11th in our series of Ideas for India uh, conversations. And I'd like to actually take this uh, opportunity to uh, recognize and remember uh, uh, Professor Ashok Kotwal, who we lost recently. This series was his idea and it's really been a wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful idea. Our uh, uh, distinguished guest today is uh, Nicholas Bloom. He's the William Eberly Professor of Economics at Stanford University. His research focuses on working from home, which we're going to talk about today, management practices and uncertainty. He previously worked at the UK Treasury and McKinsey and Company. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the recipient of the Guggenheim and Sloan Fellowships, the Bernasser Prize, the Frisch Medal, and the National Science Foundation Career Award. He has a BA from Cambridge, an MPhil from Oxford, and a PhD from University College London. Nick, we're absolutely delighted to have you with us today, and thank you for making time. Uh, I'm very um, uh, excited to uh, uh, talk to you about uh, working from home. Uh, your, your work is so insightful and uh, important. Uh, now, we all started paying attention to working from home uh, because of the COVID pandemic, but your first research came much earlier. Uh, you published your first paper on this in, uh, in 2015 on uh, uh, working from home uh, Chinese experiment. How did that come about? How did you get interested in this topic uh, way before the rest of us were aware of it? Never get that. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, yeah, I think to be honest, it was mostly good luck. I don't want to really claim, you know, like all research, you have a topic you're working on and it turns out suddenly to be, you know, become, become very central. So I started doing this, I have to say, going a long way back to uh, 2004, actually was the kind of genesis of this. So I was doing research with John Van Rienen on management practices back at the LSE. I was like, a, I think it was a postdoc. And we applied for funding from a funder the Anglo-German Foundation and Wendy Carlin was one of the people involved and suggested quite to us that we should also look at not just management practices, but work-life balance. And so the idea is, okay. you know, we're kind of interested in why some firms are more or less productive, but also why is it that some firms treat their employees better? They have better maternity, paternity, work-life balance, you know, working from home. I was personally quite attracted to that because my parents both worked from home and I was a kid, actually. Okay. Uh, and, you know, my wife and I had done bits of it. And so it seemed a natural thing to do. We ran a survey, produced some quite interesting results, better managed, more productive companies, allow people to work from home more. But, you know, it's hard to tell what's, what's cause and effect. So it could be, you know, work from home is good for productivity, or it could be instead productive companies enjoyed some of the benefits and shared it with their employees by letting them, you know, take a day or two off. And so the study you mentioned was another piece of honestly good luck. I had a student called James Liang in the back of my second year PhD class in Stanford in 2010. And James Liang turned out, as I discovered, about a third of the way through the class to be the co-founder and at that point chairman of Trip.com, one of the world's largest travel agents. You're kind of astounded, like what is somebody that's worth several hundred million dollars doing sitting in the back of my classroom? But uh, it was great. And I started to talk to James and he said, Trip had all this headquarters space in Shanghai it's really expensive and they wanted to figure out how to grow without expanding on headquarter real estate, which was costing them a lot of money. And they said they were thinking about doing work from home and 
but they wanted to test it out first. And so I got involved in a randomized control trial, which you know, we eventually published in 2015. And so that's really the history of that. And what, what did you learn from that, uh, that study? So that study, um, there were three key findings. Um, so one is, you know, to, to give a backdrop on this, going back to 2010, the study was over 2010 to 2011, it's more than a decade ago. And the firm's view was they would save space by having folks work from home. So that's experiment is with a bunch of people in call centers. So these are people like answering telephone calls, processing data. And they decided to test out having them work from home four days a week and coming in one day a week. And the idea was each team, their day they came in would differ. So basically, you only need 20% of the floor space that you'd otherwise need. You know, team one comes in on Monday, team two on Tuesday, etc. And so their view was, well, look, we'll save a lot of space, this expensive real estate, but how much will people goof off? So, you know, how much were they fall victim to what was claimed as the three great enemies of work from home, which was the bed, the television, and the refrigerator? And, you know, were they just collapse? And so the view was really a race between saving space and money and the reduction in productivity from people work from home. And so what they found was like astounding. I mean, just amazing results. Initially, we didn't believe it, but the pandemic, to be honest, has kind of borne them out in the bigger context, which was people working from home are not less productive, actually more productive and dramatically more productive. So the productivity numbers were up 13%, which is like a huge number. I mean, that's almost a day extra a week. Mm -hmm. When you drill down, it turned out that two thirds of that, they just worked more minutes at home. So you have people that do a shift, say from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., in the office, they don't always start at nine. You know, they turn up at nine ten because their motorbike broke down, or the bus is late, or you know, they leave early to pick their kid up, or the cable repair guy needs to come down, or they take a long lunch. They go for coffee break, smoke break. I mean, you can imagine it. So at home, they're actually working about nine minutes more per day. So that was one big benefit, and the other is they're about four percent more efficient per minute. When you interviewed them, they said it's just quieter. They said, you know, the office is so noisy. There's parties or the person crying next door to me. My favorite story is somebody that said, you know, the office is so noisy. The worst thing is the person in the cubicle next next to me, they clip their toenails uh, <laughs> under the table with this huge nail clipper. And they said, you know, they think I can't notice, but I tell you, I notice, you know, like I, I can't, you know, it's disgusting. And so that was the first finding that people are 13% more productive at home, a huge positive, which... Oh. Back then, we thought, how can this be true? But you've seen with the pandemic, it's worked out. Numbers two and three have also kind of borne witness to the pandemic. Number two is quit rates were way down. So people that are allowed to work from home dropped their quit rates by about 50% because I really liked it. Fact three was the kind of more tricky thing was that folks that were randomizing to work from home had a substantially lower rate of promotion. And when you interviewed the firm and then they said, look, there's two issues. One is we're kind of forgotten about a bit. So if you have a team where everyone's working from, that's not an issue. But if you have a team where half the people are, the half that are working from home are partly forgotten. And partly they said, you know, when they come into the office, they're taking all those lunch breaks and coffee breaks, they're answering less calls. But some of it is building managerial capital. So there is some short and long run trade off. So that was that study. You know, productivity is up. Happiness of workers is up. Quit rates are down. But the one negative is promotion rates are down too. That, that's, that's fascinating. I guess the 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 big difference with the pandemic when it, when it hit us was that uh, it wasn't a randomized controlled trial and uh, how 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 did that um, 
uh, affect the way that you looked at the data and uh, what, what did you learn? Uh, you, you did a lot of work on, on this topic again when the pandemic hit. Yeah, I, I, you know, it felt like the pandemic hit. I had done a couple of papers on work from home. And I wasn't actively, honestly, looking into it. Yeah. And in about, it wasn't instant, but I started to talk to a lot of journalists, actually, because I, you know, there's very little research on this. And what happened is journalists would reach out in March 2020 and saying, what do you think would happen? And mm -hmm. I, I was no, I, I didn't feel like as an expert, but you kind of look around and realize there's, there's so little data and research. So I started talking to journalists. And then the other thing is I started running a big survey with Jose Barrera and Steve Davis. We surveyed 5,000 Americans a month. And now we've rolled it out with a team of the EBRD, including data from India, actually, across mm -hmm. the world. So what we were doing is surveying every month and asking a range of questions. In that, what you basically see is that a work from home has just worked out really well. I don't want to claim it's perfect. So, you know, there's definitely issues, but compared to expectations, mm. it's in terms of productivity, you know, issues of stigma, all kinds of things, it's dramatically better than people predicted. Mm -hmm. uh, and you get to the situation now in, you know, summer 2022 that most firms and employees are saying that this is here to stay. I don't, mostly people don't actually want to work from home five days a week, but they also don't want to commute five days a week. So most people are saying, you know what, I kind of like working from home, but I'd like to do it maybe two, three days a week, come in two, three days a week, which is called a hybrid. And that looks like it's coming to dominate. And so the situation we're in now is hybrid work from home is really there to stay. The big question is actually how to manage it for companies. Like, mm -hmm. how do you make it efficient? How do you make sure people come in on the same days, but there's some flexibility? How do you actually get people back? There's this issue of the great resistance. Right now, there are a lot of firms, particularly in America and Northern Europe, have said, okay, we're coming back to the office. The pandemic is kind of subsiding and then employees just aren't returning. So were there, were there um, uh, any surprises in the, in the new data that uh, something that uh, was different or unexpected compared to your uh, earlier study? Yes. You know, I think the surprise was that it worked. I mean, you know, I'd written this paper and published it in 2015, as you cited. Yeah. Or I, I can't even remember exactly what it's called, but it's basically a randomized control trial of work from home in China. And yeah. we published it in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, which is like the yeah. oldest yeah. journal in, in yeah. economics. And it was very positive, as I said, except, except the promotion point. The rest of it is very positive. But this was a set of call center workers in a travel agent yeah. in China. So you can yeah. easily yeah. beat up on that paper. So these folks are completely not representative. So... The fact that globally, you know, including in India, I've been talking to a lot of folks in India and, you know, Asia, Europe, the U.S. Work from home, again, I don't want to claim it's perfect, but it's definitely been surprisingly good. So if you'd asked me in February 2020, well, how will the global work from home work out when basically a month from now, 50 percent of employees in northern Europe and uh, the U.S. are going to be full time work from home, probably about 20 percent in India. Mm -hmm. What would that look like? I would have said, I'm worried. Like, it's going to be a disaster. You know, it's not going to pan out. In fact, given the situation and given a lot of this stuff is rushed, it's been incredibly positive. And in fact, the other thing we see in the data surveying month on month is every month we've been asking employees, what's your firm telling you they're going to do post-pandemic? How many days a week are they telling you you're going to get to work? Which is kind of a sense of how firms are seeing things in the long run. That number has been going up and up and up. So it started at about 1.5 days a week for North America when we first started surveying back in May 2020. And it's now up to about two and a half. So what that says is not only was it 
very successful early on. You know, it helped obviously reduce infection rates, kept the economy running. It's also as the last two years have rolled on since the pandemic begun, firms and employees have discovered, you know what, this work from home thing is pretty good. It's not perfect, uh, but we're saving space. People appear to be slightly more efficient and in particular, they're much happier. So in some ways for businesses, the biggest upside is the second factor I mentioned from this original trip.com survey, which is quit rates are down. People are happier working from mm-hmm. home. And the company's fighting to retain and recruit employees. That's a big issue. If you want to put numbers on it in the survey, it looks like allowing employees to work from home two, three days a week is worth something like a five to 10% pay increase. In fact, we have numbers on that question for India in particular. And I think India is about five, 6%. Northern Europe, North America is maybe six, seven. But it's like saying as an employer, look, I can have my employees work from home for two days a week. They're at least as efficient. I save a bit of space and they treat it like a 5% pay increase. So what's not to like? And, you know, most employers have said, I get that. And so this is why it seems like it will stick. Yeah. So your earlier study was over a year and now we have a couple of years of, you know, pandemic era data. Um, Do do you have a sense of uh, whether the um, sort of the visibility and promotion issues are are being uh, handled in a, in a way to overcome that problem or? Yeah, that's a really great point. So in fact, you know, to highlight this, we went back to trip.com. The company used to be called C-Trip. It changed its name to Trip. So it's the same company, same chairman, in fact, James Liang. And we're running a current uh, randomized control trial that's just wrapping up, whereby we randomized 1,600 folks that are much more probably like the listeners. They're in, they're all grads. Sorry, they're all at least undergrads. They tend to be in IT support, finance, marketing. They're professionals. They're like our undergraduates in jobs five years from now. And we randomized them into hybrid, work from home two days a week, or stay in the office. And that, again, was very successful, very popular. And Trip has just rolled it out to the whole company. The view from there, my view is, as long as everyone within a team or a firm is working from home, the promotion issue doesn't really come up. So what the problem was is when you have a treatment group where there are four days a week at home, it's the control guys are coming in all the time and they, in a sense, get a head start for promotions. If everyone is working from home, say, two or three days a week, then there isn't this issue. And so in that sense, work from home, I think, is great. And the big negative we saw on promotion rates is fixable if it's a company-wide policy. And so because of that, I mean, most firms are getting that. It actually has some quite important managerial implications. It suggests that companies need to focus not just on getting people into the office, say, for three days a week if you have a 3-2 plan, but also making sure they stay at home on the other two. So, Nivika, imagine me and you are both in the same company, and, you know, you say, I'm going to work from home on Monday, Friday, which are the most common days, as the company suggests. And I'm kind of saying, well, look, actually, I want to come in on Monday and Friday as well. If Others are coming in, particularly our boss is coming in too. I'm going to get a head start. It's going to make you stressed. You're going to think, I can't really actually work from home on Monday, Friday. I need to come in too. And the system kind of collapses. So one of the managerial so what's is it's important to make sure folks come in on their office days, but it's actually important to make sure they also work from home on the home days. That that, that reminds me of, um, I I think it's the case in Japan where the the workers had to stay until the boss stayed and so they'd be all put in very long days and... uh, have you seen any differences across countries in terms of um, uh, the implementation or impacts of uh, working from home? 
Yes, there are. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Japan. I was talking to, I did an event for Google Japan about three weeks ago and talked to a bunch of Japanese companies. They were mostly tech, but they were almost all fully remote. This is interesting. So um, the stylized facts are it's picked up globally massively. The highest levels are in Northern Europe and the US, Australia, New Zealand. These basically are countries that are very developed and also people tend to have a fair amount of space at home. So if you think of the US at one extreme, America has lots of land. People tend to you know, live in moderately spaced apartments or houses. So it's quite easy to work from home. This is not for everyone, but you know, for a lot of folks, particularly out in the suburbs, you've got enough space for a home office. It's kind of pleasant mm. and easy. If you go to Asia, if you think of, say, Japan, uh, very developed, it has a similar industrial structure. So there's a lot of service sector jobs where you can easily work from home. But people's apartments are smaller, they're more cramped. So work from home is definitely picked up a lot in Japan. It's just not quite as, as high in levels as in the US. So to put numbers on it, it looks like something like 30% of full paid days in America will be work from home post-pandemic. The numbers in Japan may be more like 20%. And then if you go to India, Indian levels are lower, but again, I've seen a huge increase. So one thing driving levels, say, in India lower versus the U.S. is the industrial structure. So India has more manufacturing, particularly agriculture, more face-to-face -face services, less, you know, finance. Obviously, it's a big IT sector. I mean, it has finance and IT, but it's not quite as dominant as it is in the U.S. If you think of agriculture in particular, you just can't do this remotely. So in India the same sectors as in the US that are more remote focused like IT, finance, uh, you know, business services, they've seen a big increase. So in India, I think the levels may look more like 10% of working days versus 30% in the US. But given pre-pandemic, that was, you know, close to zero. That again is an enormous increase. And if you look at big Indian cities, you know, like Mumbai or Delhi, of which I've vis visited several times, you know, you could, there's a lot of very well-paid professionals living in city centers and suburbs that appreciate working from home two, three days a week. And it's pretty yeah, clear yeah. this is going to stick around. Yeah, that, that reminds me that um, the head of a, a major research institute in Delhi told me that, you know, during COVID, uh, it was very difficult for, for especially for the clerical staff, because uh, they, they uh, you know, didn't have the same uh, connectivity, air conditioning, all those things at home that they would have in the office. And uh, so uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how it affected their productivity, but definitely they were very unhappy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I forgot to mention that, but you're exactly spot on, actually. There's a nice piece by the World Bank pointing out that work from home is rising with development. And one reason I mentioned is industrial structure, that developed countries tend to have more service sector jobs that we've been done remotely, based on computers. Jobs that are heavily on a computer are much more likely to be able to be done remotely. But the other thing is around infrastructure. And in fact, I've talked to a few multinationals. I remember talking to one that had a subsidiary out in Indonesia. and said, yeah, the connectivity just isn't that great and it's hard to do it. And in fact, there's an, a massively important policy implication for uh, you know, the whole world is not just developing countries for the US and the UK, for example, is to make sure that connectivity is strong. So one way is obviously rolling out broadband. The other is interesting is things like Elon Musk's, uh, I forgot what it's called, Satellite Link. He's having this global network of satellites mm. um, that I think, I wouldn't be surprised within five years, pretty much globally, if you pay the subscription to these satellite services, you're going to have something close to broadband, you know, not a gig, but it's going to be pretty fast. Um, 
enabling people to work from home and they have electricity pretty much wherever they are. And that's going to be, a, I think, a huge game changer. Less in the US, where most houses are already pretty well connected. But if you think of India outside of city centers, connectivity is less good, particularly in rural areas. You know, if you, if you want to go back home to a rural area and you want to continue to work for two weeks, if you can connect via satellite, you don't need to worry about local internet connections. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd like to uh, get back to uh, India uh, in, a, in a, a moment, but I, I wanted to ask you, uh, just this is sort of related to the issue of promotion and, you know, types of jobs. Uh, are you seeing any impacts on uh, uh, inequalities either within organizations in terms of, you know, uh, how people move within organizations or, um, you know, economy-wide as, as a result of this, this uh, new way of uh, working? Yeah, so uh, uh, one of the tricky issues that I heard a lot from managers, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously an academic, I'm a professor at Stanford, but since the pandemic began, I've talked to actually just a lot of managers, you know, through exec ed and various discussions with firms, a lot of, you know, I talked to NASA, the World Bank, the UN Food Program, I mean, a lot of universities, this is not just for profit companies, it's all sorts, yeah. care.com charities, and a lot of issues came up around them saying, Look, we really like our firm has two groups the professionals managers grads these folks can work from home they got full remote working in the bad parts of the pandemic now it looks like they're going to let's say two three days a week they said but there's another group which is a roughly the other half that have to come in every day you mentioned maybe you know security janitorial yeah. a lot of retail manufacturing i mean huge swathes it's roughly half the economy in the us it's probably yeah. more like two thirds three quarters in india actually these are people whose jobs just require them to meet with customers or equipment or products and that group has you know got really angry i had many managers particularly early on saying look they're really angry they said i have to come in every day i've caught covid i face face health risks it's horrible i'm in a mask i'm you know wearing protective equipment it's hot um, and I'm not getting this perk that the better paid managers and professionals are, and they're getting annoyed. And I mentioned this perk is probably worth 5 to 10%. So in an odd way, it's obviously good that we have work from home because it's a benefit and it's you know making companies more efficient, it's saving on costs, and it's making us happier as employees. But a lot of that perk is going for the top half of society in terms of income and education. And that is an issue. And it's it's not a bad thing, but it's worth being aware when I talk to companies, they're often thinking about, look, how can we slightly maybe pay more to lower end employees to kind of share the benefits out a bit? Maybe you can have more flexibility for them. So I remember talking to a hospital that said, you know, what we've been thinking about, we have these shift workers, they used to do five days a week, for eight hours a day, we've now offered them to do four days a week for 10 hours a day. So same hours, but they're going to come in on less days. And so that's, you know, a milder version of working from home for them, you save them a commute once a week. Okay, well, that that's interesting. So it it, it seems like um, management practices and the organization of firms are starting already to uh, respond to um, this this new hybrid world that that we're, that we're going to be exploring. Yeah. So uh, back to uh, India and other developing countries. What do you think are the implications for um, um, urbanization and urban infrastructure? I mean, so. What, one one thing that we've seen in in the U.S. Uh, for people working independently uh, is uh, co you know small co-working locations. So yeah. rather than working from home, you are going into um, 
a, a, a place where uh, you know you, you, it's a shared space and you're not sitting with colleagues, but you're sitting with other uh, other independent professionals or whatever. Uh, is 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 there an opportunity for um, incorporating that into development in some sense, development policy, uh, urbanization, uh, or would, do you think it would just uh, arise organically? Or uh, <laughs> that's a yeah, big, big question. I two two thoughts uh, in terms of implications for India. I'll start off with a, another one. I think is and then come back to urbanization just before I forget. Another one I think is hugely important, is very positive, which is based on survey data from 500 US firms. But I've heard it more anecdotally. A lot of companies have been saying, you know, over the last two years, our teams have been working remotely. I you know IT support, a whole bunch of functions have been re working remotely. And they've been great. They've been like really productive, really efficient. And it's made us think, you know, why do these teams have to be in the, in the company? Could we maybe outsource them because it's cheaper and more flexible? Yeah. And why do they have to be in the US? You know, particularly with Trump and Brexit pushing against immigration. Why don't we move some of this activity abroad? And so from the survey we just released actually with Atlanta Fed in Chicago, we see that offshoring and outsourcing are two of the biggest implications mm. of the pandemic via work from home. So around 30% of companies in the US, and I've heard this, you know, from talking to managers are saying, Long run, we're thinking of pushing this up a lot. India, I think, is going to be a huge beneficiary of this. So a lot of American companies are going to say IT support, coding, HR, payroll, benefits, and accounting. We just don't need these people in head office. This is on a computer. It can be done remotely. It has been done remotely for the last two years. Let's think about offshoring that. And some of that, of course, will go to Mexico and some, you know, it's going to spread around the world globally. But India has an enormous head start and a very efficient and you know, productive outsourcing, offshoring industry. So I think that's going to do really well. I think India yeah. is not just the IT, but it's just the broader whole industry. And then the other thing on urbanization, you're right, we've seen evidence. I've looked less at India, but I'm pretty sure it will be there. But we've seen evidence in the US and Europe of what's called a donut effect for cities. Mm. So this is like an American donut. I don't know if India, donuts vary around the world. The British ones look totally different, but the American ones are kind of circular with a big hollow in the middle. And it's what's happening to people in big cities. So in New York, San Francisco, other big cities now, Chicago, Washington, what we're seeing in the data, we have amazing data on mobility is a lot of professionals are saying, look, post-pandemic, I'm not going to need to go into the office five days a week. I'm probably going to be going in, you know, two, three days a week. So I'm less bothered about a commute, but I'm much more bothered about having a bit of space at home to have a home mm -hmm. office. And as soon as you think about that, you naturally think, well, maybe I want to move out to the suburbs. And we're seeing that in the Zillow data in the change of address data from the US Postal Service mm. has been, uh, in fact, my co-author with Arjun Romani have been working on this with us. You see huge movement out to the suburbs. I'd be pretty sure we're going to see this. I know Arjun's looked at some UK cities. We see it in India. You know, think of a place like Mumbai, which is, you know, commuting there is just truly awful. Yeah. If you're only going to go into the office twice a week, you may just move out to the suburbs, get a bit more space. It's a very expensive city. So, that in some ways is good, particularly if you get broadband connectivity. I could see people moving out. I mean, maybe you live in Pune and you know commuting once a week to central Mumbai. I mean, you're going to see people move out from big cities out to suburbs, and including actually out to rural areas. I can see folks going to live, you know, go spend a month, a year with their parents out in you know rural parts of the country. They can get connectivity. It would be for a lot of people it'd be fantastic if you're thirty something to go back see your family, but, but continue to work would be a 
you know, an amazing opportunity. It's true for me, actually. I've, I've gone back to the UK a little bit more and I can do that and kind of, you know, a bit more seamlessly because you can just work remotely. So uh, uh, has, has that allowed you to do some more teaching online that you might have done in person or? Nivika, <laughs> <laughs> you must have the same experience. I think, you know, there are some activities that are best done face to face. Yeah. There are some best done remote, yeah. or at least I, you know, it's hard to know whether they're best, they're probably best done remote. Because those can be, I think teaching is very much in the first camp. So yeah. like you, you know, I'm sure we both taught remotely over the pandemic. It was okay, you know, I did my best and tried to have cameras on and discussions and stuff, but you know, I'll pause, it'd be great to hear what you have, but in person, just so much better. Yeah, no, I, I, I did not uh, enjoy teaching online and uh, I, I thought it was partly generational, you know, it's not something I kind of uh, felt comfortable with, but I, I think um, I'm, I'm glad to hear somebody younger like you say that too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think, um, uh, just that face-to-face -face engagement with students, even if we were, you know, wearing masks was better than uh, than doing it online. And uh, yeah, def definitely, I, I can't see that uh, uh, changing too much. Though, again, it, you know, in the context of India, uh, maybe uh, there's a lot more scope for hybrid models just because uh, access uh, to quality education is is so limited in India that you know having having uh, uh, having more um, online options uh, might might really help. No, I totally agree. I think what's going to happen, I assume we're kind of getting there already. It's just going to be a mix. You're correct. So for me at Stanford, or you know, it, if the students are on campus, it just makes so much sense to teach yeah. them in the classroom. There's a little bit of travel. Sure, we will have to travel in, but. You know, I think a lot of it's like what I call the personal trainer effect. It's like, why do people get personal trainers to make them take exercise? You could do it without it. It's because it's a great commitment device. Yeah. And for yeah. me as the professor, seeing being in that classroom with whatever, 40, 50 students. And in fact, for the undergrads, I now, you know, I have even pre-pandemic for a while, not allowed laptops open or them on their cell phones. And, you know, I'd say this is a discussion class. So I'll give you the slides afterwards, but let's just, con and that means that people are really focusing and you're committing and they're committing and you're kind of making sure that happens. Where it's remote, I know you must have had the same thing. You can see people's faces, particularly interesting people that wear glasses because it reflects the screen. You can see their glasses changing color. And I'm like, I know they're watching Netflix or they're reading the New York Times or something. Um, and that commitment just isn't there. And when I taught online, I tried to make the class size smaller. Have the you know, I, I basically had a class that I which should have been two hours. I split it into two one hour segments and then halved it for each. And said, look, an hour's enough on Zoom, but I'd rather have a small class so we can have more cameras on, et cetera. But, you know, it's not ideal. It's, it felt to me like you're going from broadband to dial-up. Just the volume of information you can, you can transmit is not as good. But, yes, if you're six hours away from a university, the in-person thing doesn't exist. So it's either nothing or online. And so online is a definite big step up. Yeah. So I, I actually diverted us from uh, uh, what we were talking about, urban infrastructure. So I wanted to get back to that and uh, ask you what you think is going to happen to uh, cities in, in uh, developed countries. Like, uh, you know, our, what, what do we do with office blocks? What do we do with all the, you know, infrastructure of, you know, restaurants and bars that are, uh, is, is around those, uh, you know, central workplaces uh, how, how how will that change do you think so 
Great question. I don't, cities are, you know, have a pretty bright future. Um, you know, there's no fear of like boarded up skyscrapers or anything like that. What it's done is probably pushed back, you know, five years of development. But just to put it in context for North America and for Northern Europe, you know, if you go back to New York in 1980, you know, I actually visited it as a kid. I remember my parents and it was pretty scary. The McDonald's on top, I remember this still. I was born in 73 and we must have gone in about 81. So it's probably what, eight or something. I remember McDonald's in Times Square. The guy had this, there were two security guards, not one, but two at the door. They both had open carry guns. I mean, it was like the crime rates were so high. You'd have to, it was just, you know, inconceivable. That was the daytime. So cities from the low point of the 80s, where there are dangerous city centers, they've just grown and grown and grown. And now by 2019, the centers of big US cities like New York are incredibly expensive and actually crime wasn't too bad. The pandemic has probably pushed that back five years. It's not even clear that's bad, actually, because the affordability crisis was a big issue. Like in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, a lot of people just couldn't afford to live in city centers. Mm. So it's pushed it back a bit. The main, if you think about the, the if I want to talk about impacts, there's on residential. So some people have moved out, but actually in America, house prices have gone up so much that all it's done is reduce the growth in the city centers. So suburbs have gone up, you know, 50% and city centers by 30. But it doesn't feel like city centers are a bargain. They've just not gone up as much. The areas where there's more extreme changes are for commercial offices and commercial realist, uh, commercial retail. So in offices, it's looking like in the long run, there will be a reduction in office demand. So if folks are, say, coming in, it looks like for New York, San Francisco, the, ver the most tech and finance focused cities, these employees are probably only coming in half the time. So that's going to lead to reduction in office space. It's not a 50% fall because a lot of people... <laughs> Well, work from home on Monday and Friday, so it's hard to really liberate all that space. It's a bit like pre-pandemic. No one worked on a Saturday and Sunday, but we didn't have, right. you know, we couldn't use the space. So there'd be a softening in office demand. The area I think is going to be the most hit is retail. So if you have office workers coming in half the days, they're probably going to spend roughly half as much on lunches, drinks, going out shopping. And that's a pretty major drop for places like Starbucks, you know, Macy's in the center of town. So... Yeah. they probably aren't going to lose out. The big people that lose out are going to be the owners of the real estate. So if you, you know, you have a bunch of retail that you lease out to Starbucks, Starbucks is going to say, look, we're only selling half as many coffees. We can't afford those rents. You know, mm -hmm. if you're going to halve the rent or out of here, and of course you've got no one else to take it up. So the people that are really ultimately losing, it's like economics, the fixed factor is the supply of land. And some of that retail land, I think will get converted. So what eventually is going to happen is a bunch of, Things that used to be shops, you'll walk into the center of town and say, hey, I remember that was, you know, that was no bon pan. And now it's, you know, housing or maybe yeah. it's an office or something else. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, actually. Um, being able to convert some of that office space or retail space to housing would actually be a benefit in, in terms of uh, create, creating more housing with less with, with a smaller commute for people. So. Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, there's a lot of kind of apocalyptic predictions. I generally think it's all good. I'm totally aligned with you, which is it's going to relatively push down housing price just because the donut effect. But then on top of that, we're starting to see conversions of lower quality office space and retail space into housing. And so that's going to increase the supply and then further push down prices a bit of residential stuff in city centers. So all of that, I think, is good. Yeah, I, I mean, there are some issues. The big, the one area that I worry about is public finances.
particularly for U.S. cities. So U.S. cities have this thing where the definition of the city is very narrow. So if you think of San Francisco, it's a very tight center of the city. If you as a tourist visited San Francisco, you kind of think of the whole area down, you know, down a bay across the bridge. It turns out they're different cities. One's Oakland and, you know, then it's Marin. And mm-hmm. I live in what's called, you know, Stanford actually, but the Palo Alto city. So um, the, the city that's defined in San Francisco is very tightly defined. And what it covers is a lot of the downtown. Now, the donut effect is really problematic for it because a lot of people are moving out from city centers out to the suburbs. They're spending, they're going to lunch and dinner out in the suburbs. So the mm-hmm. tax take for the city is down. On top of that, things like the subway, the buses, people are commuting less. They're getting less revenue from that. So the, my one fear is a bunch of cities go bankrupt or they decide to, say, slash the subways, which generates, you know, Carmageddon when everyone decides to drive and the roads clog. So I think apart from public finances uh, of some city centers, generally pretty much all of this is good news. That's great. So it, it, it's... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine, you know, how our world is going to change um, uh, in, in, in countries like the U.S. over the next uh, decade or two. And also, uh, you know, what, what, um, what developing countries might uh, do to avoid just, you know, following a path which is no longer uh, necessarily the, the best path to follow. Uh, just, just, just to go back to uh, something you said right at the beginning, you said you, you got into this topic because somebody was interested in work-life balance and it was related to your uh, uh, earlier really fantastic research on management quality and practices. Uh, what do you see happening to work-life balance and maybe even a little more broadly uh, and here just feel free to you know uh, speculate uh, uh, what, what, what would it imply for our, our sort of uh, social relationships I and mean, so much of uh, our, our society now has been struck, you know, kind of grown around the, the, this particular way of organizing work um, and, uh, you know, like go, going for a drink after work and so on. And, and uh, do you have any thoughts on, on work-life balance and uh, the structure of society? And so not, not necessarily as an economist, but, but maybe as a behavioral economist. Um, there's a lot of work on work-life balance and there's a lot of things in the media about people are more stressed out than they ever are although that's one of those things that that story's been claimed for 20 years so every year people are more stressed out than they are before it may be that stress levels are continuously rising i think actually it's hard to measure and if you survey people are you more stressed the same or less most people say more so i think the best date is time use but you know of course we have a pandemic going on so it's hard to distinguish working from home with the pandemic. I think probably the best evidence is the randomized control trial I did out in China. So just to specify this, we took 1600 people and we randomized them by even or odd birthdays. And if you have an even birthday, you stayed in the office five days a week. And if you had an odd birthday, which means you're born on the first, third, fifth, et cetera, the month, you got to work from home on Wednesday, Friday. Otherwise, everything's the same, the same city, the same pandemic experience, et cetera. What we saw, we surveyed them and we also looked at quit rates and other measures. Folks that work from home for two days a week uh, reported they're a lot happier, their quit rates were down. They actually asked them questions on work-life balance, work-life satisfaction. All of these measures were significantly better. In terms of their working hours, we have VPN time when they're at home, we know when they swipe into the office. They appeared to actually work slightly fewer minutes when they're at home, but they actually performed slightly better. So it looks like they're just more efficient. They just use their time more effectively. And so collectively, 
I think that's the best evidence that gets at the causal effect of working from home. You know, setting aside the fact it's been introduced during the pandemic and a lot else changes with it on work-life balance and net-net is positive. That, of course, is hybrid. So the issue, I think, is what's really different. I don't have any data on it. And I, I don't really feel confident about it. It's fully remote. So hybrid is where, say, we work, which is what academics have long done, actually. We've long kind of, I don't know about you, but, you know, even pre-pandemic, I wouldn't go in every day. I'd obviously go in for teaching and seminars, but maybe one, two days a week, I just work from home. So that is hybrid, and that's what a lot of people like, and it seems to be associated with better outcomes. If you're fully remote, it's less clear. And in fact, a journalist today, Aki Ito from Business Insider, just contacted me asking, saying there's a lot of youngsters, in particular in the labor market, 20-somethings, that are becoming quite disillusioned with fully remote because they say it's so isolating and they don't like it. And so I think fully remote, you know, is more like an acquired taste. It's like Marmite. I don't know if you know there's a British food product called Marmite. Some people love it, some oh, yeah, hate it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's a strong, it's like the yeast extract, I think, after brewing, but um, I like it. I mean, it's very strong, it's very salty, but I think fully remote is going to appear. We see in the survey that it tends to appeal to folks that are middle aged, a little bit older, they have kids, they live in a house, they have a long commute. And they say, look, I want to see my children, my family, my friends locally. I don't, I can do without driving 40 minutes each way. Mm-hmm. Whereas youngsters or older empty nesters tend to be more in favor of going into the office mm-hmm. two, three days a week. And then there are some people, about 20%, that want to work face-to-face five days a week. Um, and, you know, they're kind of very gregarious, very outgoing. So I think post-pandemic, we'll see a mix. We'll see some firms, particularly tech firms, offer fully remote. We saw Airbnb. It's just announced it's fully remote. There'll be others that will be in person fully, and then there'll be a third group, which are hybrid. And you, you choose. It's kind of like if you're living in America and you want to live in a big city, get a job with someone that, you know, a firm in New York. If you want to live out in the suburbs, get a job in a firm in the suburbs. I mean, move to, you know, same, I think, if you want to be in person five days a week, go and find a firm that's offering that and go work for them. So with, with, with this... Um... With this uh, presenter challenge for um, uh, managers, um, again, you know, a lot of what we saw in terms of, uh, you know, firm structure and managerial practices was very cookie cutter, and now we're in a more complicated world. So I'm wondering uh, what uh, what that implies for uh, uh, how people are, how people, uh, you know, manage manage in firms. Yeah, so I think it, you're right. It has made life more complicated. You've basically added another dimension now to managers' jobs, thinking about location of work. It used just to be five Monday to Friday in the office, and now you've got to figure out. My broad suggestion, coming back to what you mentioned at the beginning, is on a team-by-team basis, for sure, try and keep consistency. What's a horrible outcome if you have a team of 10 people and five of the fully remote and five in the office? That's just a mm-hmm. disaster. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just horrible. You can have the people in the office create an inner group and they work together, they get promoted, the people at the office get left behind. So I think team by team, and I'd probably say almost like group by group, you want to have some consistency. So I think if just take Stanford University as an example, for some jobs like security, food service, they need to be in person. So there's really no discussion about that. For a bunch of others like back office or support staff, which are a thousand of them, you know, Santa Cruz to be the same, a thousand of these folks. The university's decided something like, I think, a 3-2 or 2-3 plan, two, three days okay. a week at home, two, three days a week in. But they're relatively keen. It's consistent across the university. So, you know, some people don't feel unfair. And then there are other people like IT support, some are benefits, some payroll that will be fully remote. Those folks don't need to come in at all. In the long run, a bunch of those jobs may actually end up being outsourced. So if you're fully remote, 
you know, then the question goes, it's not obvious why you're a Stanford employee at all. And I don't know the policy on that, but, you know, I can see that for companies in general. So um, I think for managers, the main message is decide what you want to do and have it consistent across the team or the, maybe even the firm, depends on the size and the structure of the firm. And then when you figured out, say, a team is hybrid, pick anchor days. So the other big mistake is saying to the team, you've got to come in two days a week, but giving no guidance. You come in Monday, Tuesday, I come in Wednesday, Thursday. We never overlap. It's like I come in and I'm, you know, zooming Nivica from the office and you come in and you're zooming me from your. And so what you really want is managers to say, look, we're going to come in for, let's say, two days a week. And that's going to be Tuesday, Thursday. So everyone's going to come in. We're going to have all our big meetings, presentations, trainings. You know, leaving events Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're going to work from home. And that's going to be like what we're doing now. One-on-one -on -one Zoom is actually fine, typically remotely. Um, particularly if I've seen you the day before, I'm seeing you the day after. Mm -hmm. And reading, preparing data. What doesn't work so well as big meetings, mentoring, training. But you can do that in the office day. So I think the future is probably three, two or two, three, where roughly you split your time. But when you're in the office, everyone comes in on the same day. Okay. So you, you could see that as becoming maybe the dominant uh, paradigm or norm of this kind of uh, roughly equal hybrid for a lot of firms? Yeah, whether it's a lot of companies are doing it, the shares that would do it, it's hard to say. So yeah. I think a typical big company is going to have a mix. So a typical big company is going to have some people that have to come in full time who are just, you know, security, janitorial, yeah. retail. Yeah. And if, you know, if you're Walmart, the people working in store cannot do that remotely. Then I have another group at the other extreme that are going to be IT support payroll. They're going to be fully remote. And they may even be outsourced, actually. So for a lot of companies, they may not have that. They think, but in fact, they do. It's just employees that are you know, companies like ServiceNow, for example, that uh, will provide that. And then there's a third group, professionals, managers, the CEOs down. The most typical we see in our data, and we've surveyed thousands of people. And actually, I have, I have two firm-level surveys in the UK and the US. We see a similar from that side is hybrid. And hybrid... It's a challenge to organize. You're right. You know, it's not easy, but I think it's going to be hybrid increasingly. It's going to be well organized and teams are going to come in on the same days. And that's roughly where we're going to end up. Okay. Um, so a couple of thoughts related to uh, a very big topic for all of us now, which is, um, you know, reducing carbon emissions and, uh, you know, energy efficiency. So a couple of, couple of thoughts that came up. Uh, for me when you were speaking was one, uh, are, is there going to be any scope for energy efficiency within office buildings? If, if we have a hybrid model, we're not really saving that much space. Can we still, uh, you know, uh, reduce uh, uh, cooling and heating in some way uh, for empty offices? And secondly, uh, will, will we save significantly in terms of uh, transport? so that uh, you know, we're, we're getting some uh, energy savings there. Do you have any sense of how that might play out? You know, we're, we're all setting these net zero targets. And, uh, I, it's a really interesting question. Um, it makes me think I should look into this more and maybe you know, work with environmental economists or environment, you know, environmental scientists to think about trying to put some numbers on it. So let me explain. So this fact is big, big things that go in both directions, which means net net, it's kind of hard to tell. So there's an, one obvious gain you highlighted, which is less commuting. So if you think, just take, you know, average person goes from going in the office five days a week to let's say they go in two and a half. So clearly you cut commuting costs by 50%. So that's a big positive, less transport pollution. Then the tricky thing is there's a few negatives now. The first thing is 
as you talked about earlier, this donut effect is going on. People are moving further from the office. So as an economist, you know there's a behavioral response, and the behavioral response is now to move a bit further away. So you're taking 50% less journeys, but each journey may be longer. And particularly if you're out in the suburbs, maybe more likely to be by car, less likely to be by train or subway. And that's obviously bad. Second thing is the view generally, um, and it depends where you live actually, but mostly it's more efficient to have air conditioning and heating done in the office than at home. So if you think of in New York, well, I think less New York, actually more places, parts of America, say with big houses. If I live at home, I'm air conditioning or heating maybe in a large chunk of a house, whereas in the office, effectively, there's 30 of us in a building that's only, you know, twice, three times as big. So air conditioning and heating energy use now is going to go up from working from home. Mm-hmm. And then a third factor is when people move out, they may live in and build larger houses that uses a lot of energy. So, you know, those again, the negatives, there's yet another positive, which looks like business travel will be down. A lot of people have said business travel is down 20, 30 percent. So there's a lot of things pushing in both directions here. So I'd say it offers a lot of promise for sure, because we can cut transportation commute and business travel. The issue is for policy and, you know, I'm a big worry about climate change. I mean, I guess like pretty much everyone at this point is clearly a huge issue. Is can we think about trying to ameliorate some of the offsets? So you're exactly spot on thinking about air conditioning and heating. That's a huge issue actually in office buildings and how we try and make sure that you know, the worst of all worlds is the office is half empty, it's still air conditioned. And then the other half of people are at home air conditioned in the houses as well. And that probably more than burns up all the saving by not driving each day. So I don't know. I think in the short run, I'm not sure we're going to see major changes. I think in the long run, we might see some benefits. But okay. basically, I mean, this is a, a call for research, to be honest, and a research to inform policy yeah. to think about this more carefully. So uh, that that that's uh, so. Some of the questions I'm asking you are in the spirit of you know what motivated this I for I conversation series. So so please forgive me for being very kind of speculative and uh, putting you on the spot. But uh, I have another qu- uh, question in a similar spirit. Uh, thinking you know again, it's it's very sociological. Uh, do you have any sense of uh, uh, the impacts for? Um, partners in terms of, you know, two income couples or where uh, one person works and one is, um, uh, you know, uh, traditionally a full-time homemaker. Uh, do, do you have any uh, evidence of what, what this might do or um, uh, any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, so I, this is, again, I'm going to give you a speculation based on the data we know from yeah. surveys. So yeah. in the survey data we've asked, I mean, probably asked 100,000 people by now, so we've been serving 5,000 a month for two years. Wow. Questions on preferences about work from home. And one of the things you see is there's significantly higher preferences amongst people with young children. Mm. And within that group, particularly women with the young kids. So interestingly, if you don't have young children, there's no gender difference. If you do have young children, that's where you see the gender difference. Mm. And women with young children are significantly more keen on work from home than anyone without within that group it's higher for women um so you can see you know having worked in this for 20 years one of the big benefits of work from home is it tends to also give you more flexibility as well on timing so flexi place tends to go flexi time and i remember i visited JetBlue, uh us airline because when i was doing research and work from home 10 years ago and visited a lot of their home-based workers and a lot of them were primary carers of young kids that said look one of the benefits of work from home is i can take my 
kids to school. I can then log on at eight. I can work till three. I pick them up. I then stop work. But then at seven, once I go to bed, I maybe do another hour or two of work and then log out mm. again. So I think it's, as an economist, to kind of put it, try dry words on it, it's going to increase labor supply mm. of folks with young kids. Also, another angle is people close to retirement. So a lot of people, you know, my parents were kind of, you know, they've retired now, but for a while they were like, they wanted to work, but they didn't want to work five days a week on a grinding commute in and out. And, you know, it's just stressful. And if you, you know, 60s, 70s, you're like, I don't, a lot of people don't want to do that. If instead you said, look, you can work from home and only work three days a week, that's dramatically more appealing. So I think we'll see increases of labor supply of people with young kids, which is entirely positive, probably of, you know, people close to retirement, of people with disabilities, some students that may work part-time. I wouldn't be surprised if labor supply goes up by 2-3%, which would be an enormous shift outwards. And it would be a, a lot of extra people offering a moderate amount of extra hours. But that's incredibly positive. So coming back to your question, I think what you could easily see of couples with young kids, that both of them flex a bit, you know, when I, both my mom and dad worked full time. And actually, I remember both of them worked from home when I was a kid. And during the school holidays, they'd have a rotor as between who would stay home and look after us. And so I can see that. But I mean, they were both in the public. So my dad's an academic. My mom worked for the UK Civil Service. They both had some flexibility. So I can see that being much more common, mm. the combination of holidays and work from home. Couples say that we can just about cover the kids, you know, along with some childcare, maybe nanny sharing or something. And that, I think, is a very good thing. Right. No, that, that, that's really fascinating. So if I understood correctly, then um, hybrid work could actually uh, be a stepping stone to more part-time work. And uh, that, that can be really beneficial for, uh, for uh, people who are sort of tra transitioning out of careers, you know, working towards retirement, uh, you know, moving towards retirement. And that actually could be very beneficial as populations age. Totally. I mean, one way to look at it, again, as an economist, is you, you remove some of the indivisibilities. So mm -hmm. if you go into an office, if you have someone that works three days a week, you typically have to give them an office or a desk. And so you bear the full cost. You only get, you know, 60 percent of the days that they're working three days a week. If they're working from home, that doesn't that's not there. There's not, none of these fixed costs anymore. It's also yeah, the case yeah. that if you're working from home, you can work six hours a day. There's no fixed cost of the commute. So you can easily have a situation where someone works from home for four hours a day for four days a week. It's kind of a light load, but you can scale the thing up and down. Whereas if you had to commute in, there's all these indivisibilities, these fixed costs. And so that's one of the big factors that I think will mean rather than people go from a kind of one to a zero. I work full time, 50, 60 hours a week plus commute to suddenly zero. I drop dead. And not exactly, but I dropped dead in terms of working life to now I'm going from 60 hours a week say, okay, next two years, I'm going to go down to 40, then to 30, to 20. Yeah, and yeah. these are folks that are incredibly experienced and very productive. And it seems an yeah, enormous yeah. economic waste yeah, um, yeah. to have that. And then again, there's people with young kids. They don't stop work. Maybe after their kids are born, they go from 50 hours down to 10, 15. Yeah. So a lot of this thing is, I think, at the margin, making it easier for people to work part-time, stay connected, but maybe not do the full-time plus commute. This is this is really uh, fascinating to kind of think about how uh, uh, how this uh, very unexpected and you know shocking event the the, the COVID uh, pandemic in some sense has um, uh, kind of uh, jump started a lot of innovation in terms of how we organize uh, uh, 
the, the fundamentals of our, our, our economies. Uh, do, you, do you think some of this would have happened anyway, but just slower? Or do you think some of this is really, you know, we, we might have had some uh, uh, inertia that, that would have been very difficult to overcome without the shock? I, I know that's a difficult counterfactual. No, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting question. So I think I'll give you two answers on this. One is pre-pandemic working from home is doubling roughly every 12 to 13 years in, in North America. Mm -hmm. Now, the pandemic, again, I'll give you U.S. numbers, but they're a rough guide globally. It's gone from something like 5% of full paid days to about 30%. So we've seen a six-fold increase from pre- to post-pandemic and work from home. Given it was doubling about every 12 years before, I think the masses is something like a 30 years of increase accelerated into two years. So there's definitely been a big jump up, and I think you know that's permanent. There's no going back. So there's a step change up. The other thing that's interesting is I have a paper with uh, – Yulia Zestkova and Steve Davis, whereby we've scraped patents that are applied for the US Patent and Trademark Office. They publish them each week, and we scrape the text of the patent, the abstract and the document for discussions of telework, work from home, remote working, et cetera. Pre-pandemic, you see about 1%, sorry, about half percent of patents mention this. As soon as the pandemic starts, that start number starts to climb, 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 and it's now a bit over 1%, so it's a rough doubling. And what's going on is, a huge number of hardware and software companies in, you know, in the US and globally have said, look, this work from home thing is here to stay. The market size has gone up you know, five, six fold. We should really invest. We should make better equipment, better software. There's a load of startups aiming at this space. In fact, I'm involved in a few of them. And that means there's a huge burst of innovation to make work from home much better. So in economic terms, it's called directed technical change. And technical change is directed now steeply so in a big change in direction towards supporting work from home and what that means is that's going to support longer run growth so you know five years from now i'm going to look back and think you know zoom of 2022 is terrible like you know i can't believe we didn't have and you know i don't know what it will be you know there'll be some gizmo or software or hardware I, you know, i'm not a futurist i can't predict this stuff but certainly i've been following working from home for 20 years now if i go back to when i first started working in 2004 it was like horrible. It's like dial up or free conference to call.com. You'd email little files, maybe send it in the mail. If it's, I mean, just carry portable hard drives and stuff. It was very cumbersome. If you go back to the 80s, when I've interviewed people that did it then, it was like your boss would drop a pile of papers off. You'd process it and drive it back to the office. I mean, it was, it was really horrible. Um, so now 2022, it's, you know, the cloud, file sharing, you know, video calls. My guess is 2030. Technology X, whatever it is, I don't know. There's virtual reality or augmented reality or holograms or, you know, incredible AV or whatever it is. I think it would be a lot better. And the pandemic has accelerated that rate of improvement. So that's so the pandemic, I think, has done two things. One is it's a step change up. The other thing is it's probably tilted up the future rate of growth as well. Yeah. So what one uh, uh, we're almost out of time, but I uh, do have uh, one last question. So, uh, you know, I, I'm. I'm quite confident in um, uh, the fact that we're going to see a lot of innovation in uh, uh, digital infrastructure and digital tools, especially in developed countries. Uh, what what would you uh, advise a policymaker in a developing country like India? So Ideas for India is you know about evidence-based policy, and you're I think the world's expert on this topic. Uh, would you have any um, uh, suggestions, maybe not specific uh, policy advice, but things to pay attention to 
that you would uh, uh, say to a senior uh, Indian policymaker? Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd say this offers a huge opportunity. The first off is, I think it's almost all positive for India. One is on exporting you know, services globally. There's going to be a huge pickup in demand for companies wanting to offshore and outsource, and India is perfectly placed. The other thing is to open up the supply of talent and make use of land, in a sense, in suburban and particularly rural India. Mm. And so in order to do both of them, you really just have to get the infrastructure right. And the infrastructure, I think, means around electricity and internet mm. connectivity. Yeah. So for both of them, if you have reliable, you know, I've been out to India enough times to know electricity supply, you know, is an issue. Uh, broadband is an issue. You know, the satellite coverage is coming in, but it's expensive. And that's not really a way to connect up, you know, one and a half billion people. So I think those are the critical things. I mean, the other angle is, I honestly, the government to kind of get out of the way in terms of regulation. So, you know, India, to some extent, like the UK, I mean, like a lot of countries has a track record of some particularly more leftist governments are trying to regulate this. I don't think we need regulation. I think most people and businesses want to work from home. I don't think we particularly need to regulate it or tax it. I think we just need to provide the infrastructure and get out of the way because firms are going to do it. And so government should support. They should not try and control. Thank you. That's a very clear perspective, um, and uh, I, I hope uh, it gets some attention. Um, one, one last question. <laughs> I, I'm a great fan of your work. You know, I, I feel like you're one of the most uh, uh, creative economists that, that I know. Thank you. Uh, you. You've worked on three very important topics, uncertainty management practices and uh, working from home. Uh, do you have anything else on your agenda or are you going to be busy with these for a while? I don't know. I wasn't planning. I mean, the work for, is funny. It's true. For a while, I thought I worked on management and uncertainty. Management came about really because I took a job in McKinsey and I was kind of interested in, you saw the difference with these firms. So my advisor, John Banrina, had been doing stuff in organizational structure and kind of those two things overlapped to get me interested. And I started collecting data. I work a lot with Rafael Sadun, uh, HBS. And so, that kind of started that off. Um, the uncertainty stuff was weirdly came about because my wife used to be at the Bank of England and had all this amazing data on implied equity options. Mm -hmm. Well, not so much data. She got, it's a long story. She didn't, I, I couldn't get it from her, but I became aware of it through work she was doing and kind of became interested in it. And then the topic took off. Work from home is a very narrow side issue yeah. that I don't think, you know, this, you know, it's odd to say this, but in 2019, I remember about a year or two before the pandemic, I wondered whether the QJE had regretted publishing my paper in 2015. <laughs> it was getting some sites, but it wasn't hugely cited, and it seemed a bit of a weird niche topic. And then suddenly the pandemic happened. It's now become a huge thing and a big topic. And yeah, that absorbs most of my time right now, actually, running surveys, talking to companies. Yeah. And as an academic, you kind of feel like when something you work on becomes policy relevant, you want to come down and try and do something constructive and help people, help businesses, help policymakers. So, you know, I don't know. I, my guess is this excitement will calm down in another six months to a year. And I'll go back to, you know, spending a bit more time running regressions. And but the last two years has been, yeah, talking about work from home, talking to companies a lot and policymakers, yeah. which is very yeah. interesting. Joe Ding yeah. is, yeah. you can't really use the data, but you get ideas, you get hypothesis. I talk to companies, they say, you know what, we're seeing X. I'm like, that is a really interesting question. And then go and run a survey on it or go run an RCT and you find it. No, thank you. You said working from home is a narrow topic, but in a sense, uh, 
what it leads to is thinking about um, uh, restructuring and developing an economy. And uh, I think I think in that sense, your work is really uh, going to be important for a long time. And uh, I, I really look forward to uh, your, your future work on this and other topics. Thank you so much, Nick, for making time for us today. It's It's been an absolute delight. Uh, uh, and uh, I hope we'll have some uh, other conversations, not necessarily recorded like this, but maybe <laughs> in per- maybe even in person. And I'll look exactly. forward to seeing you whenever whenever an opportunity arises. Thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, Nivika, thanks so much. As, as always, it's lovely talking. We've done this many times over the years. So yeah, I look forward to me. I think the last time we met was in person. I look forward to doing that again in future, but great to catch up online. Thank you so much.